from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCowry here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, does linking ESG to executive pay actually make a difference? How do you define plastic? Why not everyone's sustainability job is in sustainability? And the first cars made of green steel. We're testing our metals this week on 350. It's February 4th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. We're so glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, but thinking about sunny Scottsdale, Arizona, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I hope you're well today. I'm doing quite well myself. I want to ask you what's going on in your world. And I, I really would like you to begin the answer with the number 30. <laughs> Okay, that would be 30 under 30. And we're looking for you or them or whoever you want to suggest. Um, yeah, I mean, all seriousness, the Green Biz 30 under 30 nomination process is open. This will be our seventh list. We have already identified 180 individuals since 2016, I guess, if I'm doing my math correct. And um, I'm so excited about this list. And, and actually, within like, I don't know, a few minutes of us going live with the story. I already had several nominations in there, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. But the uh, for those of the, those of you listening who aren't aware of this project, we are looking for early career professionals um, and uh, evangelists of the sustainability concept within their organization. It's not about the title. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be in a sustainability, corporate sustainability role. But we're looking for people who are entrepreneurs, financiers, energy specialists, food systems, disruptors, uh, circular economy mavens, if you will, climate techies, of course, since that's what I love knowing about. But uh, we want to celebrate the next generation. How's that for an answer? That's a pretty good answer, but it, but it's not just corporates too, because we've had in the past uh, we've had people from uh, NGOs, yep. we've had people from city and uh, governments, yes. maybe uh, uh, state and federal. I don't remember, uh, and and it's certainly not just limited to the United States or North America. We're we are casting, as we always do, a global net, and I would imagine if it's like past years that you know fully a third or so will mm -hmm. be from outside the United States, and of course. Like everybody, we always value diversity. Um, so yeah, this is always one of the fun projects of the year. Uh, just learning about who's out there, who are these rising stars in in uh, our organizations and others. And by the way, you can nominate yourself too. Oh, good point. Yeah, and uh, I yeah I I encourage you to look at the website. It is a uh, at the greenbiz.com website. There's a prominent call for nominations there and. Uh, We'll be sharing it in social, but if you can't find it for some reason, you can always uh, email me directly, heather at greenbiz.com. Happy to share the story with you. And actually, I'm really thrilled. You know, you brought up Scottsdale a moment ago. I'm thrilled that we're having a, a panel of 30 under 30 uh, alumni, if you will, people from past cohorts who are going to be talking about their experiences and sort of providing some reverse mentorship 
uh, for the people that want to manage them. You're like what they they value in in uh, collaboration internally on teams and um, how. The, you know, what they're learning, they ha- how they hope to share that with the next generation, but also with other generations, uh, intergenerational teams are the thing. And um, so I'm looking forward to that session at uh, the Green Biz 22 event in Scottsdale. Yeah, that's always a, a fun part. I mean, we're going to have, uh, it's trending up to 1,200 or more people. It's, it's really astonishing that given <laughs> the world right now so many people are planning to come and we would have had more except some some companies have travel restrictions right now but and and i also know that there are god bless them some people who are taking vacation time so they can come and paying their way so they can come to this event on their own or at least they're Mm. paying their own travel uh, Mm -hmm. because people clearly want to be together uh and in this great event and oh by the way it is you know It'll be in the 70s in um, in Arizona. If you've been living where you live, Heather, up in the northeast part of the U.S. or in Europe, uh, anywhere else, it's kind of chilly right now. Uh, but to to the the point I was getting to is that we love having the full spectrum of sustainability professionals from the emerging leaders that we always have there, which are the you know the really early stage. Uh, some of mostly in college or some just just entering the workforce to the under 30, 30 under 30 types who have uh, are in the in their roles and, and clearly, you know, making their mark uh, all the way through people who have retired from uh, sustainability, but not ready to uh, hang up their green shoes and um, and and want to be part of this and want to you know continue to engage and give back and just be engaged in whatever way they can. So. That's what's so great about this event, uh, one of many things. And so we are so excited about being there. And, uh, you know, we've, we've got the, the same kind of, of COVID uh, protocols that, that you and I had in, uh, encountered in Glasgow during COP, which is daily testing and pre-vaccination you know, proof and uh, even a, a negative test just to show up there and be there. So uh, we think it's going to be safe. We know it's going to be fun, and it looks like it's going to be warm. So, yeah, we're <laughs> ready, willing, and able to 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 go down there. Um, but so much for that. Let's take a look back at some of the stories we have uh, in store from the week in review. I'm going to start us off with a story about our favorite topic. <laughs> Which is that? Be? We love so many people. plastic. Actually, I, I love this piece um, from <laughs> Cheryl Baldwin. She is uh, with Pure Strategies um, Consulting, and you know we've, we we run a lot of, of of articles about plastic because it's just a topic that people care about. And and I am saying plastic without the waste because I do mean that in this this. Um, this particular instance, um, and she she just wrote a, a great piece called the the hidden challenge. Have you defined plastic? And what I love about this is it just steps back way back, and talks about the kinds of questions that a company should be asking internally when they when they're considering this to be at all. You know, just really understanding what plastic means as a material to your organization and what are the options that you're going to be considering outside of that. And it's it's really pretty deep as far as the questions that she's asking, and that's I think that's the main reason I just wanted to pick this piece is because 
if I was someone trying to figure this out holistically for my organization, it just it's a wonderful checklist of things to consider. It, it does run through all of the different types of resins that are that are involved, which frankly, I'm not an expert on. And I'm sure that anyone sort of trying to get their arms around these strategies probably needs to know more about them than they do. It really also, she goes into the whole bio-based plastic issue, which we were talking about, some organizations are talking about replacing the plastics that are made from fossil fuels uh, with bio-based substances. But there, that introduces a whole range of of questions that sometimes the simple, hey, okay, let's switch this, that just doesn't really um, address. So I picked this one mainly because it's full of questions that every organization should be really thinking about more holistically. And because we do tend to talk about this issue, I think in a very black, I mean, a lot of people talk about this in a very black and white sense, like get rid of this, plastic is bad. You know, like there, there are some people on that trajectory and it's just really such a, a simplistic way of approaching this. And that's why I like this piece. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I love the explainer kinds of pieces, and this is a, a great example of that. But I was, yeah, exactly. I was going to make the point you just did, which is that we tend to put plastics, all plastics in one bucket. And uh, and usually if you're a sustainability person, often in a negative bucket, look, we got to get rid of plastics. And of course, we can't get rid of plastics. They're part of everything. And that's Part of the problem, but but they're needed. They provide incredibly valuable services, lightweighting, security, uh, sanitation, you know, for food, uh, keeping things fresh, and on and on. I think most people get what those values are. What we want to avoid are a single-use plastics whenever possible, and that's of course gotten a lot harder during the pandemic. Um, and, and two, these multi-material plastics, what some Deride, mm. derisively call Franken plastics that can't be separated and therefore can't be recycled mm -hmm. and and need to right. uh, uh, and are just problematic uh, from uh, because they become uh, single use even if it's you know it's something that's been used for years like the casing of a of a computer or or some some other device and so you know how do we think about that going forward how do you get the benefits that plastic confers uh, to uh, our world, our lives, our products and services, and avoid the environmental downsides. And that requires, a, as you said, a deep understanding, not just of the materials, the molecular part of this, but also the ecosystem in which this plastic is going and where it, how it's created, where it goes, how it's used. And then what happens after that? And will yeah. it have a, a, a second life, a third life, multiple lives? Or can it be you know, depolymerized and turned back into the constituent parts that uh, said to make new plastics uh, in a continuous loop like we can do with aluminum? These are incredibly complex. And, and then that's not even to mention the fact that there are hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of plastics. There's, there's maybe six or seven key resins, but you put them in combination and you've got you know, a multitude of plastics that can't be easily segregated from one another, except in cases where there's just a, a whole waste stream of that one kind of plastic. And and we just need more understanding. So so kudos to Cheryl Baldwin from Pure Strategies who, who wrote this piece and who, uh, you know, I think helped with some significant sense-making on this topic. So uh, I really encourage you, as Heather was saying, to uh, 
to read this and, and, and check it out and see how it works in your job. But mm-hmm. speaking of your job, I love this, <laughs> this uh, piece, this first in a series, a monthly series that we're going to be seeing from Drawdown Labs. That's part of Project Drawdown, um, created by uh, Ayana Bodhi, uh, who uh, is a senior associate at, Draw- at Drawdown Labs. And she's been profiling two at a time sustainability professionals who aren't in the sustainability department and may not even have, as to your point earlier, sustainability in their job title. In this first installment, uh, she profiles Kate Herbert, who's a brand experience manager for snack bars at General Mills. Again, not a title that has sustainability in it. And Mike Sikowski, who is a senior business design lead at the global design firm IDEO. And so, yeah, uh, really interesting insights. What did you take away from this, Heather? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I love this sort of piece. As I was saying a moment ago with the 30 under 30, we, we, we often choose individuals who are not um, in sustainability roles because, you know, people in the supply chain, people in, in design, like Mike Sikowski, are so integral to getting companies more holistically in, um, acting on ESG issues, you know, environmental, social, and, and governance, uh, things that, that we need to be thinking about. So I, I'm i really all, I, I love the design stuff because that's part of, I love thinking about how you make this, in, you know, intrinsic into a process from the beginning. So I appreciated his point of view on how, you know, he gets clients to think about climate uh, if you will, solutions uh, from a business value and innovation um, standpoint. Of course, also, as, as the author puts it, literal currency, like where's the money? How can you make money on this stuff? Um, and how he really helps translate that into a business case. Um, love it. Uh, he's he's thinking about, uh, you know, I guess he thinks about his role as one of translator and he, he makes some suggestions on how everyone can do that in sort of interpreting interpreting the climate within their own job and um and and so forth and and he suggests this is a quote from the interview folks shouldn't be afraid to raise their hand and say actually i know some things and let me bring it to the cause <laughs> end quote so i love that perspective what yeah. about you yeah and then kate uh, herbert from general mills you know again she's a, a brand experience manager senior brand experience manager and and she uh, part of what she's talking about is helping to deliver General Mills. Uh, they have climate and regenerative agriculture commitments that they've made. And, and how do you drive those through the purpose-driven branding and, and deep understanding of what customers actually need? Um, and so, you know, and she's learned along the way, for example, that um, m- many people don't associate their own food choices with climate change. No surprise there. And yet, as she points out, uh, household decisions on food consumption can account for as much as 12% of global emissions reductions needed to avoid the worst impacts of, of a change in climate. And so, you know, what's the responsibility of a brand and what's the opportunity of a brand to to inform, educate, inspire motivate consumers and, and along the way enhance the brand value uh, of, of that particular brand, snack bars in this case. So I think people love uh, stories about actual people doing actual jobs. And we are ramping up our coverage of not only how do you get a job, how do you get a better job, how do you uh, you know 
navigate the, the career uh, life cycle in sustainability. But actually, what do people in sustainability, again, whether that's their title or not, actually do? And I'm really excited about this. We've already got um, the next installment, which we'll, we'll see in a few weeks. And I'm uh, really looking forward to this. Kudos to uh, Drawdown Labs for creating this and for sharing it with us. So I'll bring us to the final story, just from one of our longtime uh, intrepid contributors, CJ Klaus, and she writes about uh, the link between ESG performance and executive pay. This is something that you thought about before and mused about in columns, Joel, and I'm sure you have a lot of opinions about this piece, but she did a great job of um, kind of telling us where the lay of the land is, what right now, um, how many companies are doing this. Uh, I guess in, in Europe, for example, uh, I think... The, using ESG measures in annual bonuses, um, the policy of doing so uh, increased by 50%, 57% in one year. Um, this is a study that looked at FTSE companies, to the, in, uh, the ones on the London Stock Exchange, the biggest ones. It's becoming a more common practice. Um, I think it was like 30% of the uh, FTSE 250 annual pay packages include ESG metrics now, up from 19% the previous year. So it's it's becoming a more popular um, practice in Europe, uh, and not so much here uh, in in the United States. But there are some companies uh, doing it. Um, the ones, many of the ones that are like part of the the indexes that we think about on ESG performance uh, are doing it. ES, um, Apple, Chipotle, McDonald's, Clorox, Starbucks, and National Grid are just a few of the ones that are doing this. Basically, the idea is you know you, you reach certain goals that are part of your, your your broader ESG strategy and and people get paid for it. And so the the question is whether or not this really drive moves the needle, whether it's really a legitimate good sound practice or whether it makes people do things that sort of more for the the, the sake of checking the box rather than really holistically thinking about how you make this you know and it's a word that I think Everyone here uses a lot right now, but authentic, right? Making sure it's authentic. Um, and what about you, Joel? I, like I said, I know you have a lot of opinions about this particular topic. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 less going on here than it seems, actually, mm-hmm. um, because it, you know we talk about executive pay, mm-hmm. and and it sounds like okay, the boss is now you know their paycheck is is tied to 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 all of this stuff, but it's actually in almost every case, pretty much every case their incentive bonus, not their core paycheck. It's not threatened whatsoever by sustainability. It's their, the, you know, and, and for some, true, for some executives that uh, bonus can be uh, as much or more than the, uh, the, the annual salary. But, you know, let's, let's really make sure we're clear about what, what we're talking about here, that this is, you know, it's still a little bit, around the edges here. And, you know, the activist group, um, as you sow, dug into some executive pay packages last year. They looked at 48 large corporate emitters in the United States and found that only four companies make an explicit link between a percentage of executive pay and actually achieving specific emissions reductions. And only two of those uh, link that reduction target to long-term pay. So yes, you know, it's a little bit of progress and we should honor that and celebrate the fact that some companies are now starting to do this. But it's just a few companies and it's just on the margins, uh, I think. And so 
you know, will this become the mainstream in two, three, five years? Possibly. Uh, it would be great to see. I, I certainly hope so. But, uh, it, you know, it's it's not always what, it, it, what we're making it out to be. And, and then one other important fact is that um, there's a study by ISS, which is a big uh, uh, proxy advisory firm, and they did a study in, in 2020. They found that only 13%, less than 13% of American companies tie ESG performance to uh, and, and to compensation using environmental targets. 78% use social metrics, by far the most common being staff, health, and safety, followed right. by employee engagement and training and workforce right. diversity, all important things. But this is not necessarily about how uh, a CEO, for example, can can you know spur their accelerate progress on addressing the climate crisis. Uh, to the extent it's happening, it's again a really really small thing. So, yeah. Again, let's celebrate progress, but also you know understand what's really going on here. I would just like to say two things. One is that um, I there is a good. It's an example of a, a company that has very specific practices and that was Verizon which um, I think I think is worth everyone reading this piece looking at um, they they had really really specific targets um, which I think is a, is a good practice if you're going to do something like this but I also would I personally would love to see this thought about more across the entire company like to your point this is part of the sort of incentive stuff that sits on top of the the core salaries but there are companies out there, and I believe Intel is one of them that has is really trying to push the the sort of broad middle management and, and down um, to think about how some of these metrics play into things like procurement and, and supply chain operations and so forth. So I think that to me seems more potentially effective and impactful if you're if you're actually going into the places where people are managing really specific processes and saying, hey, pull this lever and, you know, you're going to get this to happen. I think that would also be very effective. Sure. I guess at the end of the day, money talks, but it's still kind of whispering right now. Last week, Volvo announced the first vehicle made of fossil-free steel. A rather remarkable achievement considering the incredible greenhouse gas intensity of steel and other major infrastructure materials. Uh, it came from a company called SSAB, a Swedish uh, uh, steelmaker. And here to talk more about that is Business Green Editor-in-Chief James Murray. Hey, James. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? <laughs> doing great. Um, so this this is kind of a big deal, I think. Um, what what did you make of the fact that this so called hard to abate sector is starting to find ways that it may not be so hard to abate? It's fascinating, isn't it? I, I did there was a report last year that actually argued against using the term uh, hard to abate because there's a risk it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, and we're seeing right across the piece now these industries that people said were practically impossible to decarbonize are starting to develop you know demonstration projects large-scale commercial-scale demonstration projects that are showing that actually no you could decarbonize them um, and one of the most exciting is definitely the use of hydrogen in steel production so there's this plant in Sweden that's been developed by the Swedish steelmaker SSAB um, in partnership with Vattenfall and some other um, companies uh, that are working on, on this sort of pioneering facility 
Uh, and, and last year they proved that it worked. They, they demonstrated um, that they could they could produce steel at very very low levels of emissions, like literally like down more than ninety percent on what is the normal um, normal processes. Uh, they've got some key uh, clients on board, and you mentioned Volvo there. They're sort of one of the pioneering ones. I think Mercedes Benz have also come on board, um, who, who have agreed to sort of take the steel that this plant will produce as it, as it starts to scale up. And what was really interesting was uh, just like late last week. SSAB announced they're going to invest over 3.5 billion pounds, um, so you know, best part of four billion dollars, uh, in massively accelerating the rollout of this technology across all their plants in the Nordics. So they're saying they're going to largely eliminate carbon emissions right across all their manufacturing sites, and they're going to do it by 2030. So they previously had a target of, of doing it by around 2045, and they've pulled that target forward by a full 15 years. And are saying they'll be producing low carbon steel, and by low carbon I mean really low carbon steel by the end of this decade. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. Do you think that uh, they're going to be an outlier, or is this a uh, harbinger for how steel is increasingly going to be made? Well, I mean, there's a couple of implications from it that I think are really exciting. So, I mean, the first is that they've got these clients on board. So these sort of consumer-facing companies and steels, you know, it's one of the foundational materials of the global economy. It's in everything. So you've got these facing companies saying, do you know what? We will, we're happy to pay a small premium for the first wave of this green steel. They're obviously confident that the demand is there. Uh, and, and that kind of has given them the confidence to go ahead and invest. So you've got that side of it. You've also got the fact that the hydrogen economy is starting to materialize. It's still very small, but we're seeing routes to which you could produce green hydrogen or blue hydrogen at scale and at relatively competitive cost over the coming years and coming decades. So you've got the potential for the sort of the, the input cost for these plants to fall drastically if the green steel and blue steel, uh, sorry, the green hydrogen and blue hydrogen markets uh, develop as planned. Um, and then the other thing that's in the mix here is the, the carbon price. So in, in the EU at the moment, I mean, the, the carbon price set by the EU emissions trading scheme, which obviously covers Sweden, has risen massively over the last year or so and analysts reckon it's going to stay high for the foreseeable future and could increase still further as um, the, the sort of the cap on the emissions in that cap and trade scheme come down so producing steel the traditional fossil fueled way is going to become steadily more expensive and you look at the sort of technology and economies of scale and, and, and deployment curves that you'd hope to see with this green steel plant that's going to become less expensive. So you can clearly see that there's potential here for a crossover point at which this, this becomes the sort of standard route forward and that any steel company looking to upgrade their plant um, is, is, you know, can see the huge benefits in, in going down the, the greener route. Yeah, as, as goes uh, steel, so goes concrete, so goes aluminum. I mean, this, this has potential, you know, for what these, again, these, they say they're hard to abate. They didn't say they're impossible to abate. Um, and it's proving that, it, not that it's not so hard, but but it can be done. Uh, I guess the oil companies who probably been banking on some of these hard to abate sectors, aviation, chemicals, and you know steel and concrete and others, uh, as being around for quite a while, uh, they must be a little bit concerned. I think the more savvy ones absolutely are. I mean, obviously, you've got some who continue to stick their head in the sand and just insist that this is not going to happen or not happen quickly enough to concern them in their, their investment plans. But I think more of the, the more savvy ones and their investors in particular are looking at this and saying, you know, 
the markets that we banked on, you know, even if we assumed the market from road transport is going to go as electrification takes over there, and we assume that the market for energy is, is going to get smaller and smaller as renewables and other forms of clean energy become more dominant there, you know, they're banking on the idea of kind of plastics and heavy industrial processes being a core driver of demand for fossil fuels. And suddenly there's a route by which that might not be true. Um, you know, there's still lots of uncertainties here, particularly over the pace at which it happens. But the sense that that demand was guaranteed and locked in for decades to come suddenly looks like a less uh, safe assumption. But then where it gets interesting is that the kind of the secret source to a lot of these decarbonisation of heavy industries that, that we're starting to see is a combination of either carbon capture and storage or hydrogen. And there's a big debate over where we should use hydrogen in the economy, whether it's going to be kind of, you know, heavy goods vehicles or even in the home in boilers. But I think that's a big distraction from where it is most likely to be used. And that is in these heavy industrial sectors, in, in cement, in steel, in chemicals. Um, and hydrogen becomes an absolutely critical component of the net zero transition therein. So how are we going to produce that and who's going to produce it is, is a huge massive opportunity. Obviously. Uh, it, it's one that gas companies, you know, hydrogen is a gas. They feel they have the expertise and the capital that, to play a role in that. Uh, and then there'll be a huge debate over whether it's produced through green hydrogen with renewables and electrolysis or through blue hydrogen with, with fossil gas and, and carbon capture. But either way, this it looks like it could be a really important part of this net zero transition um, and could happen, as, as SSAB have found, much quicker than expected when, when you're going from we'll do this in 2040 to actually no hang on we can do this by 2030 yeah i think that's uh, pretty significant the fact that they they say they can do it in in eight more years i mean it probably means they can do it sooner because uh, they're not going to you know be underestimating they're probably going to be overestimating the amount of time I, that, that bodes a, pretty exciting for the transition um, maybe much sooner than any of us expected i think yeah i think this is one of the most exciting things in the, the net zero transition at the moment and and one of the only sources to optimism let's be honest you know emission global emissions are still rising um you know we need a order of magnitude higher levels of investment and deployment to get anything like onto a 1.5 or even a two degree trajectory um so the the sort of the the last source of hope for that is that you get these kind of these tipping points in technology deployment as we've seen with technologies in the past as we've seen with mobile phones and, and computing technologies and various other uh, sectors that you can kind of transform entire sectors in a decade when the combination of the technology, the consumer, the, the, the economics all come together and, and suddenly things fall into place. And, you know, you don't want to you don't want to be too panglossian about it. You don't want to get ahead of yourselves. But there are some signs that in key areas like the electric vehicle market, like renewables, um, and and really encouragingly in, in the sort of the other enabling areas like heavy duty decarbonisation, like energy storage, that just maybe we can see how that can now be done and how those trigger points could come a lot sooner than we think, especially if the, the fossil fuel industry start to recognise, hang on, these assets are at risk of getting stranded and the safer investment is in the green stuff. Uh, and then you could see things snowball within the space of 10 to 15 years, within the space of one investment cycle, rather than this constant concern that none of this stuff's going to come through until 2030, 2035, 2040. Well, here in the dead of winter, we'll take a little positive news to start off the year. And then the month of February, 
James Murray is Editor-in-Chief of Business Green. James, it's always a pleasure to hear what's going on on your side of the pond. Thanks, Joe. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our seven free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, your questions, your tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. 